Greetings and welcome to Witnesses of the King. Witnesses of the King. My name is Eric Newcomer. I'll be sharing the scriptures with you today and we'll be seeing what we find in the book of Acts in chapters 4 and 5. Witnesses of the King is a series that's going through the book of Acts chapter by chapter and really pointing out the highlights so we get the big picture idea of what the early church was like. What is it that they were preaching? How is it that the Holy Spirit worked among them to fulfill the will of God to bring the new covenant to so many people? It is a joyous letter to read. It is challenging in places and we get to a challenging passage today in the account of of a contrast really in how the early church was giving and how a couple named Ananias and Sapphira uh, were not giving in the right way. And so we're going to see uh, God make an example of them and we're going to try to understand uh, this scripture and how it relates to us today. So it's a great opportunity for us as we go to the Word of God together. So uh, what we're going to see is we've seen so far rapid growth of the early church. Thousands of people have come to believe in a short time. Signs and wonders have been done among them uh, at the hands of the apostles to demonstrate the truthfulness of their message, to demonstrate that they are followers of Jesus. So a lot of people have had their lifestyles changed. They have joined and become part of the fellowship of believers. There's a great deal of joy and there's a great deal of awe and wonder at everything that's going on. So we're going to join in the midst of this in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. So join me, if you will, in the scriptures, and we'll see what it says here. It said, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and the great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the feet of the apostles, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet." But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself part of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard 
of these things. Let's say a word of prayer together. Father God, we thank you for this word. Lord, we pray you'll give us understanding of it this day. We pray you'll be known and glorified as we figure out and we look into Scripture and see what these things mean. And Lord, I pray that you will be known and glorified through it and that you will equip us, your church, for the work of the ministry, that we may be more effective to share the truth with many, so many may be saved. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there you have an interesting account, and you can see why many people consider this a difficult passage. Uh, obviously, the sharing of the, the early believers and everything is quite beautiful and wonderful, a simple account to understand. But then we get to this business with Ananias and Sapphira and the, the fact that they uh, lied to God, lied to the Holy Spirit about what they were doing, and were judged for it instantly. And so it makes it for a difficult thing. But let's take these one at a time. Let's first look at the giving that the early church was involved in. This giving is something that can really tell us a lot. And we want to summarize several things that we learned from the text already. Uh, first of all, we want to see that this giving that was going on is not uh, an abolition of private property. And so this is important for us to understand. It was not an abolition of private property. It, in fact, the owning of private property is affirmed in the very same passage. You know, Peter says to uh, uh, Ananias about the property that he had, was it not yours to do with what you wanted? And after you sold it, was it not at your disposal? And so it's, it's very obvious that there was an affirmation of private property here. Uh, so this was what was a free sharing of uh, personal property with others in need. And something else worth pointing out is the fact that this was voluntary and it was not compelled by any particular governing authority. This is not something that was mandatory. It was not something that was taken by force. And so this was uh, not compelled in any way. This was obviously generous. What they were giving, they were selling entire pieces of property, significant asset to, to count for one's security, long-term security and security for the family, and selling it and giving the entire proceeds to the apostles to distribute as they saw fit. And I want to also stress this, that this was limited to the context of the believers limited to the context of the believers. Now, the reason why I want to cover these is because some people get very excited uh, when they begin to read this passage and they begin to discover uh, what it is that we're really talking about here because they'll read uh, very simply the idea that, that this is total sharing. And some people have looked at this and they say, oh, this is the early church practicing communism or practicing socialism. And this is something that indeed we want to, to discuss. We want to say, is that indeed what was going on here? But we saw clearly from the text, this is not. And that's many people's discomfort with this text, particularly from the context of Western world and the United States in particular. We believe in a constitutional republic. That's what was established here. That's what brought great wealth, great opportunity to the nation. It was part of what God used. Uh, we believe in a capitalist system that is one controlled by the markets. Uh, but something we'll find interesting is that the Bible doesn't you know, pick any particular economic system as we define it and say this is what it ought to be, but it does clearly affirm 
private property. In fact, the whole law given to the Israelites and even God's moral law with thou shall not steal makes the assumption of private property. So it just so happens that uh, capitalism generally takes advantage of the fallen nature of mankind. Our own selfishness, our own desire to, to better ourselves, to better things for our family is actually what capitalism feeds into and therefore has been so successful for many, but people can be left behind in this system. And so as people come and they, they bring the idea of communism, they bring the idea of socialism, those of us uh, not in those and those of us educated in those things, we know that in the 20th century alone, uh, approximately 100 million people were killed uh, because all of these things unanimously, anytime they were tried, developed into some kind of an autocratic system, some kind of a totalitarianism developed because that what that's what was necessary to administer this widespread forced sharing upon people. And so this is why this is sometimes a difficult passage for people as they read about the sharing that people do. Uh, no human system is going to be completely protected from corruption. And it's important for us to understand that human systems, human governance, human economic systems eventually will be corrupted by those who find some way to to exercise their greed within it and their selfishness within it and ultimately will break down. Now, by experience, what these uh, large-scale, I'll call them experiments, in socialism and communism end up doing is achieving equal misery for a great number of people and but great wealth for the elite few who happen to be in charge. So. Many recoil at the notion of what this brings forward because our context is in this fallen world. Our context is in the, in the mistakes and, and the failures of man-made systems such as communism, socialism, capitalism, and the way that they have all failed to bring about the promised end of opportunity realized by all. When we try to imagine a a society without a notion of personal property, we automatically, because of this, our minds are drawn to the idea that, well, then the personal property must have been confiscated and given to someone else. We think about someone's own toil and their own work in their lives, not resulting in any personal gain, but being taken and given to others. And this is why so many people recoil at this, but it's not the case here. As we saw, and we'll go back to our, our outline here momentarily, what we want to see is that we saw a <laughs> free sharing of personal property with others in need. It was voluntary, not compelled by a governing authority, and uh, perhaps even more importantly, there was no abolition of private property, and what the Christians were doing was generous and it limited, it was limited to the context of believers. So this was something entirely done within the church body and not done outside of it. And so in the context of the church, there was this great sharing and a great and powerful, beautiful movement this was. I want to share with you uh, some things that this fulfilled. First of all, it fulfilled a biblical ideal. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 15, the Lord told the Israelites as they were getting ready to enter the promised land, 
because of the laws that he gave them for social justice, for helping the poor and the needy, the people sojourning or traveling through their land, the widows and the orphans, that the law made provision for all these groups and, and said there ought not to be poor or needy among you. And that's the ideal that God put forward for his people to live in the promised land, his people Israel. And we have to assume that is still his will will for his people, the church. Interestingly, this ideal is uh, found all over the world at various times and places, even right there where the New Testament came to be, where Jesus ministered there in the Greek world, uh, slightly before the time of Jesus coming. You can read many of the philosophers who carried this kind of idea saying, it is right and proper to share our goods with others as they have need. And their idea of friendship was that uh, the property of a friend's would be practically mutual property because they would simply share with good friends as they had need. So they had this idea somewhere in the future, this utopian society would develop in which there was no need to have personal property. Everything was shared as everyone had need. But as we know from being in the world more than 2,000 years after those men came and went, uh, we see that that has not been realized and it's not been realized primarily because of the sinful state of our hearts. But we do know it will be realized. There will be a time when people can live together and have everything that they need and no striving and no fighting over property and no concern about what one has and the other doesn't. That time comes at the return of Jesus Christ, his eternal reign in a new heaven and new earth with all believers of all ages with him. They will together be rid of these kind of problems. They themselves being perfected by God, having their sinful desires uh, wiped away and replaced with good and godly desires. And indeed, that is when and only when it will be possible to live this way. Now, this also fulfilled Jesus' command to love one another. And that's one we want to look at here just momentarily. Jesus said this to his disciples on the night before he was arrested. He said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus gives this command and by his emphasis on it and the timing of it, this is obviously incredibly important. And he gives this command in such a way as to say, this will be what defines you. This will be how people look at you and know whose you are. You'll have this love for one another. And when we get to the book of Acts, this is what we see. We see love in action, fulfilling the needs of those among themselves who are in need. And this is the defining principle for believers. It fulfills a couple other things Jesus uh, commanded and promised. It fulfills uh, the fact that Jesus promised to provide for his people. If we look in Matthew chapter 6, a Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, don't be anxious for what you're going to wear or, or uh, how you're going to uh, eat. Don't be concerned about those things. He said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, that is the necessities of life, will be added to you. So right there in Matthew 6.33, he promises to provide for those who seek first the kingdom. And this is powerfully important to understand. Jesus meant this. Jesus 
does fulfill this. We'll, we'll hear later, uh, as we come to a close, an example of this happening in the, in the life of a good and faithful Christian so that we can see this, uh, for ourselves. This is also a fulfillment of a couple of other things Jesus did. Uh, Jesus, um, said he would not only provide for his family, but look at this. The disciples came to him and the disciples said, Hey, we've left all kinds of stuff, uh, for you. And we've left houses and we've left things. And if you remember when Jesus told some of the disciples to follow him, they were at the Sea of Galilee, literally at their boats, working on the nets. And he said, come follow me. And they left them and they went and followed him. And when Jesus began to talk about wealth and things in that context, the, the disciples go, wait a minute. Hey, we left houses and stuff to follow you. And Jesus says this, he says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake in the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mother, mothers and children and lands with persecutions, everybody wants to skip that, with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So he says now in this time, he says this is not virtually, this is not something just later. This isn't looking to later. It means right now you're going to receive a hundredfold and this hundredfold is obviously a a, a, a number of demonstration here. It doesn't mean exactly a hundredfold. It means a lot. You'll have more then you know what to do with of houses and, and relatives. And what does he mean by that? Well, what he means by that is the context of the church. A true believer in Jesus Christ uh, would not have concern. Now, obviously, they'd have a lot of angst and a lot of sadness and, and everything else, but would not have a concern if their house burned down where they're going to stay the night. They will stay the night with another believer in Jesus Christ. This is how it works. We've experienced things like that firsthand at our church here. And I can assure you that it has been a great blessing to see how God provides uh, through his church for his people. And so indeed, have you left houses? Have you given away property? Have you given away things to help others? Don't worry about it because the possessions of your brothers in Jesus Christ will be shared with you as you have need. And this is a, a wonderful and tremendous promise of our, of our Lord Jesus. Wrapped up in this promise is also Jesus' redefinition of the family. Look in Matthew chapter 12 as he explains this in Matthew chapter 12. While he was speaking, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus promises his disciples, Hey, you've left this stuff. Don't worry about it. There'll be plenty more. And he tells his disciples, Don't worry about what you need. You seek the kingdom first, and what you need will be provided. And then he tells the disciples, I'm redefining the family. It's not your physical genetic relatives here. It is your your will of the father relatives. It is your church family uh, that becomes your true family. So the church, therefore, is the context in which Jesus uh, decides to provide for the needs of his people. This is made plain 
in the in the gospel. So in Acts, we look at the church and we see what's described, what it's doing, and then we look around elsewhere in the New Testament and we find that this is indeed expected and commanded of Jesus that we would act this way. So here it is. This is what we call in the book of Acts prescriptive. It's not just telling us what happened. It's giving us an example to follow that we would have the faith to trust Jesus' uh, promise of provision, to trust his promise of, of family membership among us. And this is our great opportunity to follow him in those things. Now, we always want to know, what about tithing? And people ask me often about tithing. Do you think we still need to give 10%? And I want to spend just a few moments talking about that because it's very important. It is an act of worship. To give a tithe is to say to God, here's the first 10% of whatever I made. I believe you can, you can make it and provide for me on the 90%. And it's really an act of faith to tithe. Tithing precedes the law. We find Abraham tithing in the book of Genesis long before there was a a law of God that was presented to the Israelites. And Abram, it says, gave a tenth of everything to this guy named Melchizedek. And the New Testament never tells us to stop tithing like it does with circumcision. When Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees for their legalism and overlooking what's really important to God, He mentions tithing. He says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In other words, the tithing should not be neglected, but also, and probably more importantly, justice and the love of God should not be neglected. Jesus is assuming, yeah, you ought to tithe, but you're missing the bigger point. You're missing the better thing. Tithing is an exercise of faith. Read Malachi chapter 3 to get a good look at the promise that God attaches to the act of tithing. And tithing is never overruled in the New Testament. It's not one of those laws that was was given and like circumcision, circumcision. The New Testament says, no, you don't have to do that. That's a symbol of the old covenant. That covenant has gone away. We now have a new covenant. But never is tithing done away with. And so it's very important. We are encouraged as Christians to give and to give generously and to give cheerfully. It says the Lord loves a cheerful giver. So go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. It's a great place to explore Paul's attitude on giving. And this would be giving not just to the needs of the, the poor and the needy, but also to the need of the work of the ministry to give toward the furthering of the gospel. This is both right and proper. And so when people say, well, do New Testament believers need to tithe? Is that an Old Testament thing? I say this, I say, well, if you look in the Old Testament, it talks about the tithe. If you look in the New Testament, it talks about sharing everything you have as anyone has need. So here we have 10% a tithe, or over on the other hand, everything. So find a comfortable place somewhere in between. That'll be your Christian faith. Somewhere between tithing and giving it all. And so that's my encouragement to you regarding tithing. 
Now, for the generosity that's described, we have been given a positive example of Barnabas. The last couple verses of chapter 4 talk about this man Barnabas, and he sold a field, he brought the money, laid it at the apostles' feet, but then we get that negative example that we read about in Ananias and Sapphira. Luke immediately, when he talks about the good thing that's happening in the church, immediately shares with us a threat to the good thing, to the beautiful thing that was being accomplished in the church. And that threat is a, a disingenuous presentation of this gift by Ananias and Sapphira. And so many look at this episode and it's difficult for them to understand because it seems so harsh. But notice the emphasis to this point in the book of Acts of what's going on in the church. Late in chapter 2 and then here in chapter 4, we hear that the most defining element is unity. They are unified together, dedicated to the apostles' teaching, together to having fellowship together, together to dining together and taking the Lord's Supper together, and together in providing the needs for one another. This was a great unity. And this was the unity that Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17 and, and the unity that he commanded by commanding us to love one another. This is a beautiful thing, but it is at risk and it is in danger by someone that would come pretending, someone that would come being insincere. And so this is a very serious thing. If you think this judgment is too harsh, then you don't understand how much Jesus loves his church and how much he desires his church to be pure and to be beautiful and to be in unity because these two were out of the unity. Let me explain it. It says there um, that he sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept a piece back. So their deception seems to be that they misrepresented the nature of their gift to the apostles and the rest in the church. See, Barnabas sold a piece of land and gave that money to the apostles. And so the implication, the suggestion is he gave it all, the, the entire value of the land he gave to the apostles. But Ananias and Sapphira come along and they sell a piece of property and then they give to the apostles. And it seems as if they're saying, hey, we sold a piece of property, here's the money but they had kept a part back. Very interestingly is the fact that this word kept back means to pilfer or embezzle. And the only other time it's used in the Bible is way back in Joshua chapter seven concerning a fellow named Achan. Now, if you don't recall the story, I'll remind you, the Israelites went into the Promised Land, the very first city that they encountered to conquer in this land that God had promised them to give them everything in it was the city of Jericho. And so God told them, God made them basically tithe on the land by saying, look, everything in Jericho belongs to me. You go in there and you destroy everything, but everything precious and valuable and that would be the precious metals and, and the gems and things of that nature, everything precious and valuable, you put in the temple treasury. And so this was God's way of saying, you're going to have to trust me on this. I want everything from Jericho, but you can have everything else in the rest of the promised land. 
And what happened was Achan saw a few items in there. He liked them. He kept them, hid them in his tent. And God, of course, knew. And God judged him and his entire family, destroying them all together and making it a spectacle for the entire nation of Israel, making him an example. Ananias and Sapphira, they sold this piece of property. They give money to the apostles, suggesting that it's all the money. And this is seen in, in what's said. Now look in uh, what Peter says in verse 4. This makes it more clear. He says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, your, it was your property. You could have done with it anything you wanted to do. And then he says, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, after you sold your property, it was your money you could do with what you wanted. But they lied. And the lie must have been that they were keeping some of the part back and they were suggesting, oh, we're giving you the entire value of the land. So he could have given it all. He could have given part if he just said, oh, we sold a piece of property. Here's part of the money. We kept some part for ourselves. Here's another part of the money. It was clear he could have done what he wanted, but what's clear is his crime was that he lied. And so what is the, uh, what is the real crime here? It's lying to God. And that's exactly how Peter puts it. You're, you're lying to God, not to men, but to God, the Holy Spirit, he says and putting God to the test. So the charge is pretty serious, but I want to point out this is also an act of insincere worship. Matthew chapter 6 is helpful once again. When we take a look at Matthew chapter 6, listen to what Jesus says about it. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. See, Jesus not only took the Old Testament law and made it, <laughs> emphasized it to be stronger. He said, you've heard about murder. I tell you, it's really hate in the heart. You've heard about lust. I tell you, it's really or, or adultery. I tell you, it's really lust in the heart. And he goes through the law that way, but then he goes through the good things. Are you praying for the right reason? Are you praying to be seen? Are you fasting for the right reason or are you fasting and making it obvious to everyone that you're fasting just so you can impress them with your fasting? This is what Jesus is teaching here. Giving to the needs of the poor and needy within the church is an act of worship. You are presenting an offering before God. And so this act of worship is to be done sincerely. Ananias and Sapphira brought forth this money, and by deceiving the people, it became very clear they weren't interested in just what God thought. They were interested in what people thought. They were doing this for a show. And because they were merely impressing people, people could never find out about their deception. They decided to deceive them about it, but they weren't thinking about God. And that is really the point. They weren't thinking about him. They lied to him. And when you lie to the people of God, you are lying to God himself because his spirit dwells within them. And as a community, they are a temple for the Holy Spirit. Do not lie to your church. Do not deceive your church. You bring upon yourself great condemnation when you do that. 
because those are the people of God. And remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 as he talks about the last days, as he talks about the conditions of judgment for the world. People will be judged upon how they handled and how they treated God's people. And if you think about it, that makes sense because his command to his disciples was to love one another. So if you're a genuine disciple, you will genuinely love one another and it will be seen in the last day and in the judgment that you're the real deal and your evidence will your evidence will be what you have done. So what they did was also an act of insincere worship. Now this is not the first time such a thing happened in scripture where an act of sincere worship uh, or insincere worship or inappropriate worship resulted in death. This is about the fourth time as far as I count it. Take a look here at some of the examples here. The, uh, the taking here, there's some famous first offenders, as I call them, in the scripture, and they are Nadab and Abihu. When they presented the fire before the Lord for the very first time in the tabernacle, a fire came out from the holy place and consumed the offering that they had brought. And they saw that and they must have been really excited because they went and they did it again right away. But then that time the fire came out and consumed the men themselves. So Nadab and Abihu were killed. And as it says, for offering unauthorized or strange fire to the Lord. In other words, there was something wrong with their sacrifice, with the heart attitude that they had and doing it with the way they brought it. They did something wrong. In other words, they didn't take God seriously enough. They were interested in what had happened. They thought it was cool. They thought they were in control. But God took them out as an example. Uh, so that's not the only time. We talked about Achan already in Joshua chapter 7. Uh, another one is Uzzah. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, uh, David decides to move the ark to Jerusalem, which is a good thing, right? The ark is the thing that's supposed to be at the the in the holy place. It's supposed to be an important part of their worship. It's an important artifact they had to remember what God had done for them. So what David does, he instructs people, hey, put the ark on a cart and, and let's carry it up to Jerusalem. Well, the problem is in the law, the law made it clear that the ark was never to be moved by a cart. It was to be carried on poles by the Levites. So as poor guy Uzzah, he's walking along next to the cart. It starts to wobble or something. He reaches up a hand to steady the ark and he gets killed. Now, it's not really Uzzah's fault. He was doing the natural thing. He was doing something appropriate for the moment. It was obviously his care for the ark that made him want to make sure to steady it, not let it fall. But isn't this then too harsh of God to take him out? Look, God had to show how serious it is to serve him, how very important it is to get it right, how sincere worship is powerfully important to God and important for his people. And God made an example of Uzzah. And I'll tell you right now, just like with Ananias and Sapphira, if Uzzah believed God, and he's one of those that believed all that God had said that results in, in the, the faith really in Christ that we see in Hebrews chapter 11, we'll see Uzzah someday. And you know what? He'll agree with what the Lord said. I guarantee you, you ask him if you see him, okay? If we don't see him, then we understand that, that his heart wasn't completely right about this whole thing. But if we do see him, it was a mistake he made. 
And the mistake was not taking God seriously enough, not consulting the book of the law before moving the ark. Ananias and Sapphira, same thing. If Ananias and Sapphira believed and were genuine believers and just gave into this one temptation, because we know even believers, even followers of Jesus Christ can fail even with the Holy Spirit, though I'm not sure that's the case here, um, they will, upon being perfected and showing up in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord will say, you know what you did? And they'll go, yeah, we know what we did. Man, you were right to take us out of there before we caused some real damage. Uh, if, however, they were unbelievers, then their hearts were so hardened that they could infiltrate the people of God, do something just for a show. They rightly deserved the wrath of God that came on them. And their wrath of God, if they were unbelievers, was going to come on them that day or was going to come on them in eternity, one way or another they were going to see the wrath. So God is just in what he did, although it is hard, and we can't get past that. It is hard to see. It's hard to understand. So how can we be encouraged by what we saw today? Because I, I realize this is a difficult passage. God makes an example of these two. There have been many people in our every Sunday of the year, people approaching God under the guise of Christianity with insincere worship. And God doesn't strike them dead. Why not? Well, because he set his example. And he's shown how serious he is about these things. And he doesn't desire that anyone should perish, but that all should be saved. And so he doesn't do more than he has to. He's not a God that's going to come in here and, and zap down everyone miraculously, because then we would believe, be believing by sight and not by faith. But let's look at some encouragement here. The first thing we want to see is we want to worship Jesus Christ on this issue. The promise of Matthew 6.33, to provide for those who seek for the kingdom. This is Jesus Christ caring for his church. This generosity of these believers, giving to one another, sharing whatever they need they have with those who are in need. If you really think about this, every command and every law shows God's heart. This example of sharing our things together, we can look at this one of two ways. We can look at it as, oh gee, God wants my stuff. I have to give up my stuff so that it can be you know, good with everybody who doesn't have what they need and we can begrudgingly give the gift. Or we can look at this example and we could say, look how much God cares for me. He wants to make sure that if I am ever in need, that my need will be met by my church. And this is the love of Christ, that he wants to see to it that his people have their needs met. He does not want the poor and needy among his people. He wants to provide for them and give them what they need through his people. So if you're not part of a local body of believers, I would encourage you, don't expect these things to be fulfilled without the hand of God's people involved. So tithing, cheerful giving, these are not a yoke of burden. It's a provision for you and a provision for all those who call on the name of the Lord. Are you in a position now to give? Do you not have needs that have to be met by the church? Good. Maybe someday you'll be in that position to receive and you'll be thankful that others have. So we want to observe Christ's provision and his love.
we also want to examine our own motives. God is not to be played with. Why do we serve God? Why do we give to the church? Why do we do these things? Do we do them for the right reasons? Or do we do them so that people will notice and think we're good people? This is important because this is about the intentions of the heart. And the problem is we know that God knows the thoughts and intentions of every heart. Ananias and Sapphira could not hide the truth from God, and neither can we. He knows why we come to church. He knows why we give. He knows why we attend Bible study. And if our motives aren't right for doing so, we might be bringing condemnation on ourselves. But I want to be careful here, and I want to say this, that if you're going to church presently for the wrong reasons, just keep going and pray for the Lord to change your heart and your desires in your heart regarding it. Don't stop attending because, you know, with the attitude, and I've heard people say this, well, I can't go to church with the right attitude, so I don't go. Okay, well, you clearly don't have the right attitude, but you should go because it is there that God desires in the context of his people to perfect us, to improve us, to wash us in his word and give us what we need in every aspect of our lives, not just physical provision. And then finally, I would say, make your needs known to your church so that they can be provided. And pray also for cheerful generosity. And pray for the needs of your people to be met. And this is important. This is an act of faith to, to understand and wait for what we need from the hand of the Lord. There was a, a man named George Mueller, and he lived in England in the 1800s. It is said that in his lifetime, he served tens of thousands of orphans with his orphanages. And through that, his lifetime, and he did many other things as well, through his lifetime, it is estimated that what would be the the modern equivalent of millions of dollars went through his hands. And yet when George Mueller passed away, all that he had fit in a small and humble room, some books, some basic furniture, and a single room of one of his orphanages. This George Mueller one time, uh, they had, the, the house mother had the 300 children of the orphanage dressed and ready for breakfast but they didn't have any food. She knew it, George knew it. George asked the house mother to go ahead and take the 300 children to the tables and sit them down. And he thanked God for the food and he waited. He waited because he expected God to provide the food that they needed. He knew the promise of God that he would provide the needs for his people. And within minutes after praying over the food that they did not have, a baker knocked on the door of the orphanage. And he said, Mr. Mueller, he said, last night I could not sleep. Somehow I knew that you needed bread this morning. So I stayed up all night and I made three batches of bread. And not soon after, there was another knock at the door. It was the milkman. His cart had broken down in front of the orphanage. The milk would spoil by the time the wheel was fixed. And he asked George if he could use some free milk. Of course, George smiled and 
The milkman brought in three or ten large cans of milk, enough for the three hundred children to drink. God miraculously provided for him, and he wants to provide for you. Do you need food? <laughs> Do you need shelter? Do you need clothing? Do you need spiritual healing? Do you need advice, counsel from someone wise who knows the Lord? Do you need direction? Do you need hope? Those things can be found and met among the people of God. God will provide for your needs among his people, and he will do it because he has put in his people generous hearts that will share, generous hearts that will give tremendously, generous hearts that will glorify him. Because when someone asks, how did this happen? How did this come to you? God did it. He did it through his people, the body of Christ, the church. May he be praised forever and ever. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this day for this example and this instruction from the Word of God. I pray that all of us would be cheerful givers in the body of Christ. I pray that you would help us to be attentive to the needs that are around us in the body of Christ. And Lord, help us to fulfill those needs. You will provide indeed, as you have promised, the things that we need if we but first seek first your kingdom. So I pray that you'd make our hearts sincere. I pray that you'd bring us forward in, in authentic and sincere worship to address you in prayer and to ask you to form us into people that are after your own heart. Form us into people that indeed are pleasing to you and helpful for one another. Lord, this day grant us wisdom to apply these great truths all the more and Lord, we thank you and we praise you for what you have provided to us, for you have provided to us through your church, salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the ultimate provider who gave his life a ransom for us. When we could not pay the debt of sin, he paid it. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. And Lord, that is good. And that is amazing. And he rose again. And in that hope of a new life, we walk in faith as you provide for our needs and as you glorify yourself in our sight, just as you did great works among them in those days, you do them among your people now. And they come in the form, very often, of provision. We thank you for it. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for joining me today, and I hope it's been pleasant for you. I encourage you to contact us. You can uh, contact us at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com, and you can find out more about us on whitesrun.org. Uh, there you'll find a catalog of all the sermons that have been posted online, audio and video versions. And you can also find uh, our statement of faith. You can find out what we believe, and you can find sometimes links to other resources and some of the articles there. So I hope you'll visit, and I hope you'll send your questions if you have any. Until then, God bless you.